This message is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years with expertise across income and alternatives. Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. Visit Nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principle is possible. Coming up on the Money Beat podcast, a special interview with Mervyn King, former governor of the Bank of England and author of the book, The End of Alchemy. This is Money Beat from the Wall Street Journal. Everything you need to know about money and the markets and then some. Welcome to a Money Beat podcast. Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser here with you. And we have a very, very special guest today. We are lucky to have with us Lord King, who many of most all of you know, we have the best we have the best listenership in the world. You all know this man, uh, governor of the Bank of England from 2003 to 2013. He is now a professor at both NYU and the London School of Economics. And he has written a new book out, uh, I believe this month, definitely this month, called The End of Alchemy. Money, Banking, and the Future of the Global Economy, and he is on the phone with us right now. Uh, Mervyn, how are you? Very well, Paul. Good to talk to you. It's great to talk to you. Uh, I want to start off, so uh, there's something, and as soon as I started reading the first couple of pages of this, there was a phrase that came into my my head, Mervyn. I don't know if you're familiar with this. it's It's something in the, it's some slang in the American South. And it's it's a reference to when people aren't really they're not insulting people, but they're kind of obliquely demeaning them. And it's called throwing shade. I don't know if you've ever heard that one before. I haven't, but I shall now remember it. <laughs> OK, yeah. See, you're you're teaching us about economics and we're giving you American slang. Uh, are you throwing shade at economists in this book? No, I'm saying that uh, economists maybe try too hard to be like physicists with a world concluding of you know, natural laws, if only we discover them, we can make perfect predictions. And that isn't true. And uh, I, I think of economics as a bit like Newtonian physics. In many situations, it's a very good uh, prediction of what people do and how people behave. But there are some situations, particularly when making investments and saving decisions about the future, where because the future is inherently unknowable, we need something different, more like Einstein's theory of relativity as applied to economics. Uh, And that's how you understand booms and slumps. People's expectations and beliefs matter critically in that situation. And you can't just apply mathematical equations to explain what happens. I was just going to I was going to step in here and take a, like a little step back but because I think it's actually interesting you know both Paul and I have bookshelves full of tomes like rehashing the financial crisis a lot of memoirs you decided to go not down the memoir road not down you know discussing the conversations you had during the financial crisis and all that and you and, and this book like looks forward a lot more can you tell me why did you decide to go down that road and write this book well, partly because everyone's library, like yours, is full of <laughs> such terms. Uh, secondly, because, frankly, in the end, they turn out to be self-justifying. Right. And no one's really interested in that. And the historians in the future will have access to all the records. They'll write the definitive history of the crisis, not me. But deep down, much more because my experience was that during the crisis, I started to think more deeply about what were the economic factors that have produced not just this crisis, but a whole series of banking and monetary crises going back several hundred years. 
And this had become an inherent part of a capitalist economy. Why was this so, and what could we do about it? Well, and I think that gets to, uh, you know, let's start digging into, right, just the meaning of the title, The End of Alchemy. I think people know what alchemy is in sort of the, the classical sense. But in terms of, of banking, and you get into this in, in the book, what does alchemy mean? Is it something that central banks do, commercial banks do? How does this, what, what is this that you're talking about? Essentially, it's what commercial banks do, that you and I put our money into a checking account, and we think that when we want the money back, we can just go to the bank and ask for it. And it's true, provided one of us does it, but if everyone went and asked for their money back, the bank would not have the cash to pay us. It would have been lent in the form of loans to businesses and households. So there's an alchemy in the sense that we pretend that these very safe and liquid deposits can be used to finance highly illiquid and risky investments. And that's simply not true in aggregate. There is some pretense. And the, the price we pay for believing in this alchemy is that every now and then there is a banking crisis when confidence fails, people do want their money back, and the central bank then has to bail out the commercial banks. And what we need to do is to create a banking system where the banks, in essence, have to take out insurance before they're allowed to operate as banks, a bit like motorists who drive. They can't go on the road without taking out insurance. We don't pay out insurance only after the accident. Uh, we make sure that people can only drive with insurance, and we need to make sure that banks do exactly the same. Yeah, the, the line that stuck out to me in the book that, you know, in a sentence sums that up is, you say alchemy is banking, alchemy and banking is turning risk into safety. And it seems like that is, that's something you hear in the market a lot. I mean, people are, people are always kind of, everyone knows there's risk in investing, but there, you always hear this sort of subtle sales pitch that is, you can't miss on this investment. You can't miss on this deal. This is something you have to be in. How much has that whole sort of risk mindset, that risk society permeated what we do on a daily basis? And, and how, look, we know how dangerous it was in 2008, 2009. How dangerous is it still today? Well, it is still dangerous today because this, as you say correctly, this pervasive wish to fool ourselves into thinking that something that really is inherently risky can somehow be transmuted into something that's safe. We all want to believe it, but in fact, it can't be done. And the, to, to me, the interesting fact is that although there are now tens of thousands of pages of detailed legislation and rules governing banks, we haven't done anything to change the essential nature of banking in this respect. It still is alchemy. One of the questions, too, is you've seen since the financial crisis, central banks try everything. Um, I mean, now we see, I mean, I think it's what, 20% of the world's GDP is now you know, in uh, negative rates, as in countries with negative rates. Why... Why haven't we been able to sort of generate, you know, uh, the growth, uh, global growth, um, the way we would want to? Well, I think we've been operating with a faulty view of how the world got into this mess. So for much of the post-war period, central banks took the view, I think correctly, that every now and then something came along to push the economy off course, a headwind if the economy slowed down, a tailwind if it speeded up. And the role of monetary policy was to temporarily either help the economy back onto its normal growth path 
um, either through having lower rates if there was a headwind or higher rates if there's a tailwind. What happened in the last 30 years was something totally different. It was the beginning of a, 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 an enormous fall in long-term real interest rates, interest rates after adjusting for inflation, which has completely distorted the balance between spending and saving within our economies. And you can't expect a market economy to function properly with a real interest rate of close to zero. There's no incentive to save. There is, uh, indeed, central banks have been lowering interest rates to encourage people to spend. But we, we, we have now to change the balance of our economies to find a way back to what I call a new equilibrium, because we weren't just in a tiny deviation from our normal growth path. We got into a major disequilibrium. And monetary policy can buy time to make the changes needed to get back to the new equilibrium. But it can do no more than that. It, it's, it's like a painkiller. Uh, it, it's a very good thing to administer to a patient that's suffering. But no good doctor confuses a painkiller with a proper diagnosis of the underlying symptoms and then the appropriate treatment. So monetary policy has been desperately trying to persuade people to spend today rather than in the future. And as time has gone on, uh, we've bought a bit of time, but then they have to cut interest rates again yeah. in order right. to persuade people to spend more. Right. And there's a limit to how far this can go. Central banks are now a bit like a cyclist pedaling up a hill that's getting steeper and steeper. Now they're having to pedal faster and faster to maintain the same momentum in the economy. And, and we're reaching the limit of it now. Wow. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break, and we will come back with Mervyn King after these important messages. I'm Veronica Dagger, and I want to retire rich. How about you? Then listen to the Watching Your Wealth podcast. We'll help you get there. For more information, check us out at wsj.com slash podcast, and find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. We are back, Paul Vigna and Stephen Grosser, with Mervyn King, former governor of the Bank of England and author of the book, The End of Alchemy. And Mervyn, I think at the at the break there, you, you got to exactly the, the key point where we are. And it's the question that it, it seems to me that the, the situation right now is everybody sort of understands that central banks can't fix all our problems. The central bankers, you and Governor Bernanke and other central bankers have been saying that. You, you said it all along, but nobody really cared because you were the only game in town. Uh Everyone understands that the central banks can't solve all the problems. Everyone understands that there has to be a different solution. And and what you started talking about, changing the balance, a new equilibrium. I don't see a lot of people actually coming up with with detailed plans on how to do that. So how do we do that? How do we get past this point? Well, there's no simple quick fix. But the first step is to recognize (laughs) that this really is the problem and that central banks are, are not the only game in town and mustn't be allowed to be painted into that corner mm-hmm. by governments who are reluctant to do more and who like to have an alibi by saying, well, we've left it to central banks. So I think a key to this is that no one country can easily get out of this on its own. I mean, I think most countries today could quite credibly say that if only the rest of the world was growing normally, then we'd be fine. <laughs> but since it isn't, we aren't. And what you're now seeing is the consequence of that, which is that countries are, whatever they say officially, that in practice they are trying to push their exchange rate down in order to try to boost trade and steal demand from the rest of the world. And of course that's going to be self-defeating. And and up until now, it was the United States that was on the other side of this with the dollar rising against all other currencies 
that were trying to push themselves down. That can't go on. And um, we need to recognize that we're all in it together. So I do think the IMF has a big role to play, not in coming up with detailed coordination of interest rates or exchange rates, but actually getting some agreement on over how many years we're going to take to rebalance our economy. Because we can't rebalance our economy unless other countries rebalance theirs over the same sort of period. So the, the steps forward, I think, first of all, have to be a recognition that the fixing of exchange rates, whether that was China's exchange rate against the U.S. dollar or the exchange rates within the euro area, those fixed exchange rates have been part of the problem and not the solution. And we need gradually to move away from that. And I think that's very important. The next thing I think, is we, we really do have to take seriously the need to put together a long-term program to boost the supply side of the economy. That's the only way now in which we're going to persuade people that it's safe to spend if they believe that their future incomes will be high enough to justify the levels of debt that they've currently got. And uh, you could, there are many, many measures, and they'll vary from one country to another. What matters is not that they affect the supply side quickly, but that people gain confidence from the fact that they can see a credible long-term program of such reforms, preferably bipartisan in nature, being put in place. You know, whether it's infrastructure today or education or reform of the tax system, there are changes in regulation, there are a whole series of things that could be done, no one of which is dramatic, but taken together would add up to a credible program to make people more confident of how well off they'll be in the future. No, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. I mean, uh, Paul... On this podcast talks about this all the time. Where you know, you see the scars of the, the financial crisis still with people, and also at the same time, wages just have not really moved in this country for eight years. And you know, um, in a consumer spending economy, that's really you know. Well, and I think that's that's part of the problem. I mean, you 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 know, you talk about confidence, and I think it's important. But I mean. No one's going to go out and spend money. I mean, at this point, we are so scarred. No one's going to go out and spend money unless they they have it in their pocketbook, unless they can really see it. And you you saw that with, the, I think, the, the whole thing with oil prices. They went down so far, and everyone said, well, this is going to be great for consumers. This is going to be a, a tax cut, and it's going to be a benefit, and it's going to be – and nobody spent the – no one. No one spent the money. Not Not a single person. But in aggregate, nobody spent the money because – you know, I think we've gotten to the point where, for the consumer, it's a it's a bottom line. If I don't see my wages growing, if I don't believe, if I not believe it, if I don't see it, I'm not going to do it. How do we get past that kind of a mindset? Well, I, I mean, I, and people are being quite sensible when they do that because right, right. what the what the crisis did was to make people realize that the level of spending we were engaging in before the crisis was unsustainable. Yeah. Uh, the crisis taught us that lesson. People have learned that they were making probably what now seems like a mistake uh, before the crisis, so they've adjusted their spending down. Now, I think the key point is that if we are to see recovery of growth in the economy, we do need to see more investment. But to see more investment, right. people have to be confident that spending in the future will be higher. So I think putting in place this program of reforms, demonstrating that we're serious about rebalancing the economy, not just relying on consumer spending trying to get us back to where we were in 2006. We don't want to go back there. We want a different balance in our economy. And if we could see the governments were serious over a period of doing that, then I think you might start to see investment pick up. 
that in turn would lead to some recovery. That would put more money into people's pockets, mm-hmm. and then consumer spending would pick up. But you're quite right that um, you know people used to say, well, this crisis was caused by too much spending, too much borrowing, too much credit. And what's the answer? It's even more spending, even right. more borrowing, even more credit. That cannot be the answer. That's the painkiller in the short run, perhaps. But it isn't the long-run answer. Yeah. And we, what we've been doing by engaging in more and more monetary stimulus is trying to buy time. But while we're doing that, we've actually been pushing the economy in completely the wrong direction. What we have to do now is to stimulate, at least in our economies, more investment, more exports, and not to rely on consumer spending so much. And in economies like Germany and China, they have to do the opposite. They need to have more consumer spending in their economies and rely less on exports. Right. And only in that way are we going to rebalance our economies and get back to a sustainable growth path. Yeah, and you know the the, the irony of the painkiller, as you kind of alluded to before, is that because central banks are doing what they're doing, the the people who should be instituting these reforms, the lawmakers, the elected officials, they feel the pressure coming off of them, and they feel less impetus to do something. So that's kind of a, a vicious cycle there. Uh, there's something well, that, that's that w- why I think yeah. it's very important for central banks to make clear day in, day out, speech in, speech out, mm-hmm. that they are not the only game in town. They can do no more than buy time. And, of course, I understand that it's very difficult for people to, ad- to say publicly that I, I can't do much more to help you. Uh, but that, I think, is what central banks now need to do. Yeah. There, there's a line in the book I want to read to you. You know it because you wrote the book. The key to ending the alchemy is to ensure that the risks involved in money and banking are correctly identified and borne by those who enjoy the benefits from our financial system. And I want to ask you, is there is there a case, is there still a case for reforming the banking system and what needs to be done there? There is a strong case. A lot has happened in terms of regulation of banks, but I'm not sure it's been terribly productive because what we've done is to create masses of detailed legislation. We've increased the cost of having lawyers and compliance officers tell bankers what they can and cannot do. But we haven't actually changed the underlying alchemy. And what I propose in the book is a system which would make banks, well before a crisis in normal times, take the assets on their balance sheet to the Fed or other central bank, have them valued by the Fed, and have the central bank act as a pawnbroker. That is, it would say, if at any time in the next five or ten years you need an emergency loan, for example, if the depositors want their money back, then we will give you so many cents in the dollar on these assets, maybe 95 cents in the dollar if it's a safe asset, or only 35 cents in the dollar if it's a risky or complex asset that the central bank doesn't really understand. And the rule, what I call the pawnbroker rule, should be that all banks have to have enough collateral, enough assets positioned with the central bank so that they have a guaranteed cash credit line sufficient to pay off all the depositors. And if we could get ourselves into that position, and I explain in the book why we're, we're much closer to it than people might think, and we can do this, then there would never be a bank run again because everyone would know that all banks would have an automatic cash credit line sufficient to pay them off. And if we at least could eliminate bank runs, then the sort of panic we saw in 2008 would not happen again. We would certainly still have ups and downs of the economy. 
there'd still be shocks, and banks might still lose money on bad loans. But what we wouldn't get is this enormous panic in a short period, which forced the Fed to throw vast sums of money at the banking system, created enormous lack of confidence around the world, not just in the United States, but around the world, uh, a, a world recession, and, of course, deep anger about the fact that when banks needed help, they were bailed out, but they never had to pay an insurance premium beforehand. Yeah. And that's what I want to put in place, a system in which banks have to pay the insurance right up front. So then it is not unreasonable in a crisis that they be allowed to borrow from the Fed. Hmm. All right, let's take one more, uh, one more break and we will come back with Mervyn King. I'm John Wardock. Want updates on the biggest stories of the day? Then listen to What's News from the Wall Street Journal. From top business stories... Apple says if they weaken the security of their phones, they make their customers' data more vulnerable. To the economy... I think American consumers are uh, alive and doing well. To election 2016... Today's a big day in presidential politics, obviously. It's the day of the New Hampshire primary. Check back several times a day and enjoy What's News... From the Wall Street Journal. WSJ Podcasts. Listen ambitiously. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Money Beat Podcast. Paul Vini and Stephen Grosser with our special guest, Mervyn King. And I'm going to hand it over to my co-host. Well, Mervyn, we just wanted to sort of, I guess, move to the the EU and uh, the Eurozone. And just, you, you have an interesting line in the book. And obviously... This has been a major focus um, over the, since like 2011 of whether the the, um, the eurozone was going to survive, the EU was going to survive. And you say the monetary union, far from leading to greater political integration, was proving the most divisive development in post-war Europe. And I wanted to sort of get your thoughts about um, the eurozone and the survival of the euro. So I think the the, the the tragedy of the monetary union is that Germany entered monetary union at the invitation of other countries for the very best of reasons. It wanted to be seen to bind itself in to Europe so that no other European country would again fear the power of Germany. That was done for the best of motives. And in doing that, Germany sacrificed the Deutschmark, the one symbol of success of post-war German economic recovery. Yeah. And the, the Deutschmark meant everything to the German people, and they willingly gave it up in order to join monetary union to bind themselves into Europe. The consequence has been that Germany is actually more powerful politically and economically today, and there is more anger towards Germany in countries from Greece to Italy, other countries around Europe, than ever before. It has backfired, and it's backfired for very good economic reasons, which is that countries in the south of Europe lost competitiveness during the first decade or so of the monetary union, they had big trade deficits as a result, so they had to borrow. And the only people now who are willing to lend to them are countries in the north. So you have this creditor-debtor relationship that's getting worse all the time and real dispute as to who is driving the economic policy of countries in Europe, even to the extent that the French and German central bank governors a few weeks ago said that the euro area desperately needed a single finance minister for the euro area. Well, that's pretty much tantamount to a political union. Right. And the mm -hmm. countries in Europe are not ready for a political union. Why should they be? They've been independent for centuries. It's possible that in 100 years or so, our great-great-grandchildren will think otherwise. But it's not true today. And by forcing the pace of monetary union, what's happened is that we've created more political divisiveness 
in Europe, and that is deeply damaging, not just politically, but now economically. The, the downturn in Greece, the recession in Greece in the last few years is worse than what happened in the United States during the Great Depression. Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. if you'd said to me 10 years ago, we'd see something worse than the Great Depression, I would have said, that's not possible. We know how to prevent it. But it's happened in Europe. Right. So if, if it's going to take 100 years for people to sort of mentally wrap their heads around the idea of a unified Europe, uh, how long can the euro wait? I mean, what happens in the next 5, 10 years? Does the euro survive? Does it break up? I think it's very hard to predict because what we're now seeing is a battle between the strong political will of the current political elite on the one hand and economic arithmetic on the other. Now, what may well happen is that even if the current political elite refuse to concede that this was a mistake, that other political parties will arise, new politicians will enter the picture and try and find a way around this. Because I, I think and you, the, the former chief economist of the European Central Bank itself, Mr. Otmar Issing, great German economist, has warned Europe that to try and force through bureaucratic means either a single finance minister or some artificial fiscal and political union will be politically disastrous because there is no democratic legitimacy for it. Yeah. You cannot create an artificial country by forcing countries together out of economic uh, adverse circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I think it would be a, a terrible mistake for the current approach, which is to find some bureaucratic mechanism to, to mimic political union when there is no democratic support for it. And you can see already that every time Germany is told, well, you better pay money to the countries in the South, Germany resists because its taxpayers have not agreed to that. What do you think about, and, and this is a little bit different, but the, just the Brexit that um, everyone, you know, but, you know, the talk. Right, but but it's really not because we're talking related. about no, really the, the same forces. Are we going closer or further apart in Europe? I mean, really. Right. I mean, I what do you think? Oh, go ahead. I think, it is, I think it is important to distinguish between membership of the European Union. Right, right. right. Which is what the British referendum is yes. about. And membership of the Euro area. Yes, and. Yes. You know, the British Prime Minister, David Cameron, has made it absolutely clear that he has no intention at all uh, of joining the euro, and nor do I think any pressure group in Britain is advocating joining the euro. Right. Nor, I think, would the euro area want to have another big country in the euro area. They've got more than enough problems as it is. <laughs> um, so I think these two things are logically quite separate. But just in... Okay, well, let's just let's just be extremely blunt. What do you think of Brexit? Do you think it uh, should would would you would you vote for it? Well, I said before, I'm not going to to answer that question <laughs> in public because okay. my my successor uh, Mark Carney has a tough enough job as it is. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anything I say will immediately be taken by an innocent journalist and relayed to him and said, well, this is what your predecessor says, Mr. Carney. Right, What's right. your view? And that puts him in a quite impossible position. I have no intention of putting Mark in an impossible position. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a smart answer. We had to ask. You realize we had to ask, of course. No, of course you yeah. did. I understand that. <laughs> uh, you know, I do think one thing, if, if you sort of look at the, the long arc of history, there is no doubt been a success in Europe in the fact that, I mean— it really was not that long ago that you had 
all the countries in Europe at war with each other, and that is completely unthinkable today. I mean, the idea that France and Germany would ever go to war, or or Germany and Britain, I mean, that is completely unthinkable in a couple of generations. So, you know, whichever way this all goes, I, I think you have to look at it in a, in a larger swath of, a larger sweep of history. You do, but I think um, one, we, we just have to be very, very careful about making strong assumptions about the future. Yeah. Before the, we've been celebrating or marking rather the, the centenary of the First World War. Before the First World War, people said it is inconceivable <laughs> that there could be a war among the great powers of Europe because they were the biggest uh, trading yeah. partners of each yeah. other. Uh, and true. yet it happened. Yeah. So um, inconceivable stupidity among statesmen and countries can happen. And I think if you just go back two years ago, three years ago, I don't think you'd have imagined that the pressure the European Union is now under as a result of migration from outside yeah, sure. Europe. And the, the aspiration of free movements of people within Europe was something that was introduced when people imagined that what that meant was individuals in one European Union country wanting to move to another what people did not anticipate, didn't even conceive of at the time, was a massive movement of people wanting to come from outside the European Union, whether from Africa, whether from Asia, into Europe, and then to move between countries in the European Union. Uh, this is an example of what I talk about a lot in the book, which is events that are not even imagined beforehand, and so they're not priced in the market. Mm. They, 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 they come out of the ether, and we have to cope with them. Uh, they weren't part of the problems or the world for which the European treaty was created. And it's a new problem, and Europe is trying to confront it now. We have no idea how this is going to pan out. Yeah. Uh, let's switch gears, because I don't want to take up too much of your time, but there are just one or two other things I really want to ask you about. I just want to get your take on negative rates. What do you make of them? What do you think of them? Well, I think, as I, as I said earlier, with central banks are like the cyclist cycling up the hill. It's getting steeper and steeper. They're pedaling faster and faster. There's a sense of desperation in, in going to, to negative interest rates and a limit on how far it will go. And I think the, the objective of the central banks that have introduced negative interest rates is, I think, by and large, the hope that the announcement effect will lower the exchange rate. And that's the main transmission mechanism that seems to be in operation. Now, it worked for a bit, and I think Japan went down that road. I think what's interesting is that the European Central Bank, that was pretty successful for a while in using announcements to influence the exchange rate, have found that in the last two or three months, the power of those announcements has diminished. Hmm. Yeah. No, it really, it really has. I mean, Mario Draghi was able to, you know, when he said, you know, we'll do whatever it takes, um, he was able to, like, basically turn the markets around, right. um, like, what was it, three years ago? Well, he, he did it. I was standing next to him when he yeah. said it because he did it at a conference in London just before the opening of the 2012 Olympic Games. Yeah. And what was instructive about that was that Mario just had a little piece of paper with two or three words on it. He didn't have the text of a speech. And he made that announcement, and of course all the wire services wanted to read the speech, and there wasn't one, <laughs> but they, produ they produced one. 
But <laughs> the, key, the key announcement was not just Mario's statement, but the following day when Angela Merkel and François Hollande came in and said they would give total backing to Mario Draghi. Yeah. And what yeah. that meant was that the, the net effect of this statement was that it wasn't just the central bank, the European Central Bank, but also the two biggest European governments were committed. And it, therefore, the, the impression was that government and the European Central Bank would work together to make this happen. Yeah. And the problem for Mario Draghi since is that governments have not been able to agree on the measures that only governments can take. So everything is being left to him. And there is a limit to the mandate of the European Central Bank. So now Mario says he will do everything within his mandate. But the trouble is that mandate may not extend to the measures that are actually needed now mm. to make the euro area flourish. Yeah. I mean, you see the same thing over here, too, in some ways, where the politicians seem to at times be working almost against what the central, you know, what the Federal Reserve is trying to do in terms of, you know, sort of some of the, you know, the, the you know, the debt ceiling, the fiscal cliff, you know, all right. these sort of things. Right. There, there are three words in the book that I want to uh, string yeah. together uh, and, and come up with a question and get your take on this. Uh, alchemy, which is in the title, of course. Barbarism, which I saw in you were quoting John Stuart Mill, but in, in reference yeah. to money and Bitcoin. And I want because I'm a I'm a Bitcoiner. Not I don't own it, but I mean I, I cover it. I write about it a lot. So I want to get your your take on how outdated is our infrastructure, and where do you see it going? And I'm not asking you to. And I actually I know what you said about Bitcoin. I'm not asking you to like promote Bitcoin, but I mean just in terms of of digital currencies, uh, the future of the monetary system. How how outdated is what we have right now, and where do you see it going? So I'm sure the technology of what we do will change and evolve over time and that digital banking will come to the fore and our transactions with each other, whether it being paying for meals in restaurants or transferring or between stocks and shares and other investments will all take place in digital form. But I don't think that means the end of money or the end of banking as we know it, because what the book... In the end, what the book is trying to say is that to manage money and to manage banking, we cannot leave it to some uh, external force outside governments. And however much we may mistrust governments, and obviously people who like gold and like Bitcoin are attracted to it because it seems to be something that doesn't depend on management by governments. But however much we may mistrust governments, I don't think in the end we have any alternative but to try to create social institutions, government institutions of some kind, independent central banks, whatever you want to call them, that will take responsibility for managing money, both in normal times, which means ensuring there is sufficient money in the economy to allow the economy to grow, but not so much that it creates inflation. And that crucially, there is also an institution that can create enough money or liquidity in times of crisis to satisfy our demand to put all our assets in a very safe, secure, liquid form. And no automatic standard like gold or Bitcoin or anything else can do that. It does require a discretionary judgment. And I think the reason why alchemy has been so difficult to overcome is that it does require a collective approach where we create institutions, we put people in charge of them, who over time learn how not to 
achieve perfection, but actually can manage money in good times and bad times to ensure that we can cope with the shocks and occasional small crises that come along, but don't let them uh, become very big crises of banking and money. And, and ultimately, that, I think, is what we have to do. Wow. All right. Uh, Mervyn King, governor of the Bank of England, 2000, was it 2003 to 2013, author of the book, The End of Alchemy. Uh, it's been a great interview. I really, really appreciate yeah, your time. Thank you. Not at all. Thank you very much indeed. All right. Uh, and everyone, come back. Uh, we'll have more podcasts for you. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.